Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This is Jeremy McFarland for the Footballers Family Podcast. When you look back on the history of sports, you notice that there are certain events that have a lasting impact, not just on sports itself, but also on society. Those events are remembered and talked about for years to come. Those events are the ones that you will tell your grandchildren about. Not only are there events that change the history of sports, but there are also people who change the history of sports as well. People who may be destroyed an unspoken rule or fought to make it possible for others to enjoy freedom that they themselves may not ever see. Today's guest on the Footballers Family Podcast is a firm believer that the history of sports is not only important, but also explains everyday life as well. This was a great interview, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you would like to be part of the Footballers Family Podcast, please message me at Jeremy underscore McFarland on Twitter or follow us on the Footballers Family Podcast Facebook page. While you're at it, please subscribe to this podcast along with the other podcasts that are available on the Sports History Network. And we're back to Footballers Family Podcast, and I have a special guest. And I'll tell you what, I we were talking before uh, recording, and I've enjoyed just the just the five minutes that we had talking, and and I think you're going to enjoy it as well. Would you like to introduce yourself, my friend? Yes, sir. My name is Dana Guster, and tonight I'm going to be talking about football, man, which is my, one of my favorite subjects. Sports history is my, big, my favorite subject above all. Well, but you found the right podcast because this whole network is about history and sports. Right on. So, obviously, I'm in the right place. I'm sitting in the right school at the, you know, at the right bar. So, we're all good. All right? So, now, you have a, you have a Twitter. Let me, let's get that out first. You know, historically, SP2 is my Twitter handle, and the name of it is Historically Speaking Sports. And what I normally do on a daily basis is, you know, put out a little nuggets on what happened on this sort of day in history, whatever year it may be, and it's something that I enjoy doing. I started doing this in, I want to say like in March or whatever, trying to find something to do during these crazy pandemic times, you know, to kind of keep myself sane. But uh, it's grown into something, and I'm really, really enjoying it. Now, I have uh, had the opportunity to look at your uh, Twitter page, and it's not just about football. There's a lot of special stuff on it. Yeah, I do. Well, I'm well-rounded. I mean, football, I love football. Um, I love baseball, basketball. I'm in there. Hockey, I'm trying to get into, but I know a little bit about hockey. You know, being from the South, we I hadn't had a lot of experience with hockey, so I have to depend on some of my, some of my people up north up, up in Canada to kind of educate me a little bit on that. But uh, Are you tell them the only ice we have down here is in our sweet tea? That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, I'm in, I'm in uh, Hurricane Mills, Tennessee. You okay. spent a lot of time down in uh, Louisiana or Louisiana there. Yeah. And uh, you you, uh, you went to Southern University. University, yes, sir. In, in Baton Rouge, you said. Yeah. 
Now, I went down and had the opportunity a few years ago. I spoke at a, a gospel meeting in uh, Hammond, Louisiana. Oh, okay. And that is, let me tell you what, it was, it was around the time of uh, Mardi Gras. They didn't go to Mardi Gras, but I did have the cake, and I cannot think of the name of the cake. King cake. Oh, it was, I tell you what, uh, I left feeling full and only ate one bite. It was <laughs> thick. Yes, that's, that's a king cake. That, say no more. I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, I know exactly what you're talking about. And uh, I try to get some of my friends and some of my family back in Louisiana whenever comes Mardi Gras time to send me one. But it just seems to doesn't even make it to the mailbox. I guess. I wonder why that is. It, I, I tell you what, um, I can see why people are happy in Louisiana during that time. There's always something to do. I mean, I tell people that you go to New Orleans on a Tuesday and you're going to find a party somewhere and they're celebrating just because it's Tuesday. You know, that, especially this year, Dana, especially this year, we need to be celebrating just the basics and to be enjoy, the joy to have uh, the chance to just do something, uh, just to do something. Right. right. Anything. I, yeah, I mean, that's that's the whole thing of it, man. And, and, and having the ability to talk, you know, to you tonight, man, is one of the it, it brings is is a joy to me because anytime I have a chance to talk about sports history, is a party for me. It really is, and that's the way I think everybody should find something that that they enjoy doing to kind of like pass the time, just to get away from it for a second, you know, and just kind of enjoy being here. And I think that's one of the most important things. Just make sure you don't eat the baby in the king cake. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I have to, you have to warn people who haven't had it before. They watch out for the baby because if you do eat the baby, you got to buy the next one. Yeah, now that's 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 important now. Um, but I have your paperwork here, and it says that you uh, you have seen a lot of Saints and Falcons, and yes. you can talk about the rivalry. Now you said you you lived in Louisiana and you're now in Atlanta. Yeah. So obviously between those two cities or those two areas, you've probably seen a lot and heard a lot from this rivalry. And from what I understand, it's, it's, uh, it's a pretty deep-seated, uh, you know, hatred. You know, I, I, would, I, I, don't, I think hatred between the two cities is maybe an overstatement. Okay. I, I think it's, it's more along the lines of jealousy more than anything. Here's what I mean. Okay. When you talk about Atlanta, People from New Orleans, I feel, or people from South Louisiana is kind of jealous of Atlanta because of its influence, because of its wealth, because of, you know, certain things of that nature. Now, on the other hand, I think people from Atlanta is jealous of New Orleans because of Mardi Gras, because of Bourbon Street and the French Quarter, because of the culture. You know, they got beef with between jazz and hip hop, you know, jazz in New Orleans, hip hop in New Orleans and Atlanta. There's like a little bit of a jealousy tug of war going on between the two cities. And I think the two football teams are emblematic of that jealousy. Okay. You know, if you think about it, when you come down, when you think about the Falcons, you know, they're not, in, in my opinion, they're, they're one of the best team, but the team that most that mostly, I think, embodied the spirit of Atlanta was the 91 Falcons that – you know, was led by Jerry Glanville, and you had Andre Risen, and you also had 
uh, Deion Sanders, and that team had so much swagger and so flashy. Is that the too legit to quit Falcons? Yeah, the too legit to quit Falcons with, with Hammer on the sidelines and stuff like that, and they made it to the the divisional round of the playoffs that year where they got thrashed by Washington, you know. But um, that's emblematic of, of Atlanta. New Orleans, on the other hand, is the team that basically is like the city. With Drew Brees and Sean Payton, you know that you're going to, when you watch the Saints game now, it's fun. You're going to have a lot of fun watching that game. Win or lose, it's going to be entertaining. It's going to be fun. There's going to be a lot of points scored, a lot of passing yards. That is, the Saints, to me, embodies what New Orleans is. You know, there's an old saying dealing with the Raiders, but it's the same way with, any, with, with both the Saints and Falcons when you say that New Orleans are the Saints and the Saints are New Orleans. Typically, the Falcons are Atlanta, and Atlanta are the Falcons. Now, uh, I am. Uh, I just spent. I spent a lot of time in Atlanta. My wife is from uh, about an hour or so south of there, so we spent a lot of time uh, in Atlanta. Beautiful city. I oh, yeah. went to several Braves games. I've I've even been to Atlanta Hawks game, and that was interesting. I um, they were playing the New York Knicks, so it wasn't much of a game, but well, you know, whatever. I enjoy my time in Atlanta because I love the big city feel to it. Mm-hmm. When I went down to New Orleans, um, and we just we we spent maybe four or five hours walking around, um, it didn't feel like a big city. It felt more like a more laid back, just a, a earthy feel to it. Right, right. Um, New Orleans, I think, is more have more of a European vibe to it, I think, than, than you do than, than Atlanta. Atlanta just feels like a big city. Atlanta just feels because it's so busy in the traffic and the big Oh, the traffic. Like that. You know, and trust me, I deal with the traffic every single day. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but it, it, Atlanta does have like the, this big city vibe to it, you know, but New Orleans is, you're right, it's more along the lines of a, not, not a small town, but a, a, more of a, a city that has its own way of doing things, you know. It's a city that is very laid back, like you said, very laid back, very relaxed, very, you know, we're not particularly obsessed with anything. We're just here, you know, and we're just here to have a good time, basically. Now, now Dana, let me ask you this. Um, where were you uh, during Katrina? I was living about 40, about, about 50 miles southwest of New Orleans when it hit. Uh, so we got a lot of, we didn't get as much damage as New Orleans did, but we did have power for like close to maybe a little bit over a week we didn't have power. Uh, we didn't get flooded or anything where I was. Uh, we were, I was in a little town called Homa, which is where my wife's from. Okay. And we didn't get, a, we got damage, not significant damage, you know, like, we, you know, just some Fallen trees or whatever, and a lot of rain and and stuff like that. But New Orleans really got devastated. But luckily for us, it wasn't that too too bad. It was bad enough without power for like close to two weeks. Okay, so you're you're down in Homer, Louisiana, and you are within an hour drive to New Orleans. Right. What type of news were you getting from New Orleans during that time? Very little, actually. Um, what was so funny was that I had some friends of mine, like I said, live out in Canada, 
And when we finally got power and finally got phone service and stuff, we, I called them because I know they were calling me like crazy, like because they probably were watching news and saw what happened. I called them up and they were like so surprised to hear from me. And I'm like, I'm good, man. What's going on? So it just so happens that we turned the TV on the CNN or some news station or whatever. And we saw what had happened. And we went because we had heard all kind of rumors about the Superdome was completely destroyed. And, you know, downtown is no more and all of this other stuff. And once we saw what was happening, it was just as bad as we thought, but in a different way. But it was really, really terrible. And I would tell people when I would tell people what happened with Katrina, there's no way you could over-exaggerate what happened. It was that bad. Okay. And it was that bad for in in New Orleans, I think, is just starting to come to where it used to be right before Katrina. And we're talking about what, 15 years later? Yeah. Yeah. Golly. Doesn't make you feel old when you can count in the decades. Yeah, I mean, I mean, because my son, like I said, my son is a sophomore in high school, and he was just born when Katrina happened. Well, okay, so you're you're looking at, so you have a a interest in that area for several reasons, but uh, kind of go along with that. Um, it took them, I think, they went warp speed on rebuilding the Superdome. You almost lost your Saints. You they really did. did. Well, there was talk about the team moving out of New Orleans even before Katrina. Oh, really? Talk. You know, it, was, it, was, it didn't go as far as, like, official talk, but it was, like, rumors, basically, because at that time, Tom, Tom Benson owned the team, and he was originally from San Antonio. And San Antonio had been trying to get an NFL franchise because they already have the Alamo Dome. Right. And there was talk at that time, and – it was just, it didn't, it really it didn't go as, it didn't go further than rumor that, you know, Tom Benson may be in negotiations with the NFL trying to move to San Antonio or anything else. But when Katrina happened, I was one of the people that said, dude, this is a foregone conclusion and they're gone. Especially the damage that the Superdome had had and, and all of that. I really thought that the Saints were as good as gone, you know, and they decided to keep the team and redo the Superdome and renovate the Superdome, what they needed to do for years before then, you know, but they were just dragging their feet on it. And when Katrina happened, it gave them pretty much a blank check. They said, okay, go ahead and do what you got to do. And they just went ahead and did all of the renovations, improved it, do paint, everything. And it was almost a brand new stadium when it opened, essentially against the Falcons that, that Monday night. Now, what, before we get into that game, because there's one play in particular, you know what it is, that really changed the Saints. Um, what was the feeling down there? Uh, were you present or did you watch it on TV when they unveiled the, uh, the sign out, out front? I was, I, I was actually, I wanted to go. I really, really wanted to go, but I couldn't go for whatever reason. But I would watch the game and they had like news coverage like for hours before. It was like a Super Bowl. In, you know, down in New Orleans. It was down in South Louisiana for that night for a Monday night game. It felt like a Super Bowl because they did, they started a pregame show like I think about three o'clock and the game went until seven. And like the local news, you know, and stuff. And then when they unveiled the banner, you know, right in front of the stadium, it was like, okay, they're actually going to stay. You know, I was like, I changed my mind. They're going to stay. They're going to stay. You know, 
And um, it, 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 you got to understand that most of my family are Saints fans. My wife's a big Saints fan. My son, even though he, he now is, you know, he, he likes the Saints, but he also likes the Seahawks. So he kind of trades the two. But most of my family are Saints fans. And they, you know, they were like really, really hyped, you know. And that night, you know, for that for that time, I put away my, my 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 fandom of the Chargers just for that night, really, and became a Saints fan for that that particular night. And I was like so hyped when I saw that banner out front, and you could just feel when the game right before the game started, and they did like a crowd shot. You could just feel the electricity and and and, and the just coming through the television screen doing that game, you could just feel it, you know, and it's like, and everybody in the state of Louisiana that wasn't a Saints fan, or maybe just a football fan in general, was, part, you know, felt like, okay, this is something, this is something that, that we could feel, and we feel like we are actually a part of this, part of this kind of the rebirth and rebranding of the Saints. Now, I don't think that the Falcons had a chance in that game. They didn't. No, they didn't. They, they really didn't, you know. Well, okay, describe you, – you know what I'm about to ask. Mm -hmm. um, probably a hero for so many reasons, but Steve Gleason. Yep. Uh, that dude was no bigger than a minute. I mean, he's, he's, uh, he was wiry, as they said on, on, on a couple videos I watched. He's wiry. But he bust – well, go ahead and describe the play if you could. Well, he busts through the center of the line, okay? And from my it's perspective... insane, by the way. That's the strongest part of that line, and he did that. And it, it opened up like you could drive a truck through it for some reason, and it just opened right up, and you had a straight shot to the punter. And I remember watching it. And you know what? And, and one thing about me, I, I think it's like that with every football fan, is that you have a feeling that something's about to happen that you just can't explain it, you just can't describe it. There's just this is almost like a like a like a like a feeling that okay, something big's about to happen right here, right now. You have to pay attention. And that's exactly what the feeling that I got. He busts right through, and I'm like, oh, he's gonna block it. And as soon as he blocked it, everybody went crazy. Everybody, my wife went crazy, everybody went crazy, just cheering and stuff, and then and then Curtis DeLoach recovers the football in the end zone for the touchdown, and now it's like, that's it, it's over. It's over. You know, it's over. And just, and it was like, it just felt like the whole entire region of the of South Louisiana just took, they didn't necessarily cheer because of something good happened. They cheered because it was just something, it was like a relief, like, like a release. Like, we've been under all of this since Katrina happened, the Saints are here, and this is just a feeling of just a release of, oh, yeah, this finally, okay, something good finally happened. And that's the way it kind of, that's the way it felt for a lot of fans. Like, now, okay, we're going to do this. We're doing this now. And even though it they might have been the only, it might have been the only win they might have had that year, but it would have felt like they, like, this no. made the season, right? Absolutely. Now, San Antonio deserves a team. They do. But can you imagine the San Antonio Saints? Uh, no, I can't. I really can't. I can't. You know, um, 
You know, San Antonio, you're right. San Antonio does deserve a team. They deserve a team. He definitely got a, a loyal fan base with the Spurs. I mean, just a super loyal fan base. And it would just, and then with it being Texas and the, the popularity of high school football in oh Texas, gosh. you know, that team would be just, a, it would be a natural fit in San Antonio, just a totally natural fit. But they deserve one, uh, you know, and, and that, but they don't, the Saints have to stay in New Orleans. They just have to, right? And you see it every Sunday. You see it every every Sunday with the, with the uh, with the the fans when they did have fans. Um, the Superdome being filled like every week. In fact, during the the Saints' lean years, you know, it took them twenty years before they had a, even a winning season. Okay, and in those twenty years, they were always in the top ten in attendance. Always, even in the days when they played at Tulane Stadium, they were always close to the top in attendance, and they had terrible teams then. The Aints. That's right. Now, now, Danny, you, you said something, and it just – it boggles my mind how people become fans of teams. Mm-hmm. And there's got to be a story behind your Los Angeles Charger fandom. <laughs> I, yes, I And, and I want to I preface this that before the Titans came to Tennessee – I was a Denver Bronco fan. Okay. And especially when my boy Jay Cutler became the quarterback there, I have a feeling that just seeing Phillip Rivers do what he did to Cutler, I just – just the Chargers just ah. – but, but, you know, I'm going to let you – I'm going to hold my, my opinion on the Chargers until, until you tell me why you like them, and then I'll let you know what I think about them. Okay. <laughs> it, it, it's a couple things. It's, okay. it's a couple of things. One is based in the typical father-son rivalry. That's one reason. Because my okay. dad is crazy, deep, down, hardcore Oakland slash L.A. slash L.A. Las Vegas Raiders fan. He bleeds bleed, he bleed, um, black, and, black and silver. Bleeds it. He loves the Raiders. And as a kid growing up, I got into football when I was like eight years old. And as most kids that grew up in South Louisiana, you either teams you either like five teams. It was the Saints, the Steelers, the Cowboys, the Oilers, or the Raiders. And I just could not identify with either one of them. So at that time, there was a team out on the West Coast that had the lightning bolts on their uniforms, and it seemed like they scored 35, 40, 45 points every game. Now, some of those games, they would actually lose, but they scored a lot of points. And there's just something about them that I just, like, gravitated towards, you know, with Dan Fouts and Kellen Winslow and John Jefferson and, you know, late on West Chandler and Chuck Muncie, who came from the Saints, by the way. Um, there was just something about them that I just gravitated towards. And one Monday night, they played the Raiders. No, 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 it was a regular season game. It was on a Sunday afternoon. They played the Raiders on national TV. And the Chargers beat them something like 50-something to 20 or whatever. And Kellen Winslow caught like five touchdown passes, you know, and just, just embarrassed the Raiders. And my dad was just sitting there just fuming the whole time. And I was like, I was loving it. And then from that point on, yes, I like this team. The, the blue and gold, you know, the lightning bolts on their helmets and stuff. It just seemed like they were just so cool, you know, and there was just something about them that I just gravitated towards. And 
I belong to this uh, Facebook group of, of Charger fans, and I tell them all the time that in some cases, you don't choose your team, the team chooses you. And I think that the Chargers chose me in a way because that everything about them I've always liked, the high scoring, because they've always been a team that has been associated with high scoring and offense and oh, stuff. Yeah. And like, like, like the Titans, for example, you think of the Titans, you think of power running and power running backs. Absolutely. You know, you know with Derrick Henry and Eddie George and going back to the Oilers days with Earl Campbell and in the early 60s with Charlie Tolar. I mean, these were like hardcore power running backs. And every team has a certain identity. And the Chargers' identity has always been offense. And I've always been partial to offense. Now, now, now tell me this, Dana. You um... – Man, I respect that. I'm I'm giving you a hard time. Um, you know, <laughs> people people like what they like, and and I support that. That's part of the reason why I like doing this podcast. I want to know why people like what they like. Uh, do you have a powder blue hat? I used to. It got messed up. I got one. I got a couple. I got one in the closet, but it got messed up because I got caught in the rain with it. And it oh, so but I got but I am getting one. You now, know like a whole collection of Charger hats over the years. Now, I, the one thing I could say about the Chargers, in, in my last, uh, the previous podcast that I that I released over jerseys, we talked about this. Um, I, to me, the, the Chargers, the powder blue and maybe even the white pants or the powder blue and the yellow pants are the best combination in the NFL. They are. I mean, I'm just, this being in total bias, and it, as it turns out that, I attended Southern University, and their colors were powder blue and gold as well. But um, the Chargers powder blue and gold combination is, is, is that is emblematic of Southern California. It, it just is. It is. I mean, you Southern California. In fact, those are actually my wedding colors. As, as a fact, as a matter of fact, powder now, blue. See, see, that's how you that's how you fully immerse yourself into fandom, right there. You know, I also have a I also have a the fandom of it of UCLA, same color, very anyway, similar colors. You know, um, but the powder blue and gold combination is something that it, that, that I've always, always, you know, felt that like that's a cool color combination. Chargers uniforms, number one, point blank, the end. Do you like the numbers on the helmet, or do you just like the the lightning bolts? I like the numbers on the helmet. I just because it, it has a because it gives it a little bit more more you know more of a retro look. It does. I like them too. It's very similar to, uh, you know, just basically college. Let's put the yeah. numbers on the helmet. Very sweet looking. You know, and um, yeah, that, that's, you know, they, they tried to go all the way back to the way they, the way it looked in the 60s and early 70s, you know, uh, with the numbers on the sides of the helmet because it gives it a little bit more of a look of the, you know, the old AFL, yes. you know, type of thing. And um, that's one of the things that I, I fell in love with. Like, I like that. Now, the color rush jerseys, the ones they wore yesterday with the Falcons, with the with the with the royal blue, I like that. You know, I'm gonna have to look that up real quick. Uh, it was a, you know, it was a royal blue with a gold lightning bolt. Uh, we don't get a lot of. Oh my goodness, you're not joking. Now that see, I always like the white helmets. Um, yeah. For some reason, I, I think that they're just clean looking and they're very nice. Um, it's very <laughs> you couldn't uh, you couldn't mistake the Chargers for any other team but the Chargers with those jerseys on. Yep. 
Now, don't get me wrong. Now, the old, now another jersey I liked from back in, you know, not too long ago was the original Titans jerseys, the original Tennessee Titans jerseys. When it first came in, when it first moved to Tennessee and they renamed, and Bud Allen renamed them the Titans, you know, that one right there. That one. Yeah. I'm showing a bobblehead of Vince Young. My son got yeah. it when we went up there. 2006 Offensive Rookie of the Year. I wish he turned out like he should have. But, yeah, you're talking about the jersey. That's that's the uh, two-tone. That's Eddie George and Steve McNair. Yep. And uh, the greatest – and it's funny that you mentioned Steve McNair. Um, when I was at Southern, I was at Southern the same time Steve McNair was at Alcorn State. Did you get to see him play? That was one of the greatest college football games I had ever seen in person. When they played Southern, Southern won, I think the score was something like 56 to 45 or something like that. Good gracious. And it was, I think it still is the most attended Southern University home game ever. I think it had like 50,000 there. It was was because of Steve McNair, wasn't it? It, Because Steve, I think that year, finished third in the Heisman. There was a, and I don't have it anymore, and I kind of kicked myself, but I had a an issue of the Sports Illustrated that had him on the cover that said, give him the Heisman. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was watching him play when he was at Alcorn State in person. There's some things that I've seen him do. I haven't seen any other quarterback do since. Uh, as far as, like, his mobility, his accuracy, the weight, his, his, his arm strength, his – just his his escapability when he was at Alcorn was something was something to behold. Now you saw a little bit of that on that final drive against the Rams in the Super Bowl. You saw a little bit of that, but imagine watching that. There was one play that I remember doing that last drive when he got on that last drive going down the field when that ill-fated play to Kevin Dyson. Um, you we kind of saw about a little bit often. of that. You saw a little bit of that that Alcorn State type of athleticism, you know, on that, on that final drive. It looked like he jammed his leg, like it almost bent Barbie style inward when he stopped. And that's the one thing, and, and, and there's one thing that people don't understand about Steve McNair. When he was here in Tennessee, um, they said, well, he missed a lot of games. That dude, number one, never complained. Mm-hmm. Number two, had so much physical problems because of the football because of football that he was I don't think he practiced during the week ever mm-hmm. but he is one of those guys that you call a gamer yeah and he was like that with, at Alcorn he was like that the whole time he was at Alcorn State and you could tell that by the way he played and I became a fan of his when he came to the NFL first came with the Oilers when he came with that contingent when he moved to Nashville um, but watching him play was just something something special. And I talked to my son about him all the time, about how great of a player he was, you know, and how great of a you know teammate he was. But he was all but above all, he was a leader. He was one of the best and unheralded leaders that you could find. You don't talk people a lot of people talk about his athleticism and his on strength, but never about his leadership. And that was something that he was very adept as a leader for any team, whether it's for Alcorn State or the Titans. Now, they, there's a story about him, and I, I got a couple more questions for you after this, but there was a story about him. I don't know if he was at Alcorn State or his rookie year for the for the Oilers at the time, 
but they had a they had something where they had a pig they had to catch the pig and everybody was trying you know the pig is if, if you've ever seen pigs run they are fast they're jittery you think the big sows they can't run they can move they can right. move um and he said that everybody was diving to get the pig and all steve did was reach down grab his leg and pick it up and the coach said you are country strong mm-hmm. and that that just kind of that shows you who steve mcnair was he was just a good old country boy who did well in football from Mount Olive, mississippi and you know what um i regardless of how his life ended how we remember him in in nashville is that play super bowl 34 we remember one yard because he led us there yeah and that's what how i respect you know again regardless of how his life ended i you throw that away yeah you remember him out on the field right let me, let me ask you a question if you had the chance right now and, and i've asked a couple of people this but i want to ask you this and you had a chance right now to own are you a collector you, you merch uh, memorabilia or just things that yeah work. i do yeah actually i do i do um they're still in louisiana that i have to go get that my dad pretty much confiscated from me but i have like <laughs> a collection of charger helmets oh really real chargers yeah actual charger helmets the only one i don't have is the new one but i got everyone else okay and, and i'll tell you what i respect that uh if you could just reach back in time and grab one thing for yourself what would it be oh man that's a great question um, I asked the hard-hitting questions there, Dana. That is a great question. <laughs> I'm going to tell you what I would, I would love to get my hands on, right? If I could find the actual jersey of John Hadle, the quarterback of the Chargers, because he was the original number 21 of the Chargers. Yes, he was, wasn't he? The original 21. And he was a quarterback that didn't look like a quarterback. Ron Mix told a story that he thought he was one of the equipment guys when he first showed up with the Chargers when he was drafted out of Kansas. But he was short, he was stocky, but he had an arm and he knew and he really understood um, Sid Gilman's playbook. You know, and that was one of the reasons why they were such a high-scoring team in the 60s. Now, they never – now, they won one championship in the AFL, but it wasn't with Hadle at quarterback. Hadle was the backup. It was Tobin Rowe. But Hadle had so many of so many of the passing records put up before Dan Fouts came along. But John Hadle's jersey is one of the things that I would love to have and hang up and show people that he was the original, like, number 21 of the Chargers. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking up right now. The the one that most people would recognize is probably one of the greatest runners ever is LT. Yeah. But you're talking John Hadel, H-A-D-L, quarterback <laughs> from 62 to 72. And uh, I tell you what, that's not a bad person to want his jersey. He had uh, AFL All-Star four times. That's impressive. That's impressive. So here's here's my final question, and I'm going to – I'll leave you with this. And I appreciate your time, Dana, and I'll tell you what. Uh, let's have you back on. All right, man. Look, anytime you need me, man, just give me a holler, bro. Yeah. I'll, I'm here. You, know? you are a friend of the show because you are real and you are true and you're telling me everything I want to hear, um, right. which, which is history. I love it. I love it. But if you could put up – if I give you a piece of granite right now and uh, a chisel and a hammer, and you can make your own uh, 
you can make your own Mount Rushmore of Charger players. Who would it be? Okay, it would be well, one. The first one, of course, would be Lance Allworth. Oh yeah, Bambi, got to have him on on there. Lance Allworth is one of the reasons why I fell in love with the Chargers because I saw old so I, I saw old film clips of him when I was like eight nine years old, and it was like I had never seen anybody that fast ever. I mean, he was one of the fastest receivers I had ever seen. And you think about it, he was not only fast, but he was smooth. You know, his route running and his just overall pass-catching ability, along with his speed, was just something. And, you know, I, I, I would forgive him for being a teammate of Jerry Jones at Arkansas, but something <laughs> just came <laughs> You can't help who your teammate is, I guess. You can't help that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Lance Allworth would be the first one. Okay. Second would be Dan Fouts. Because Dan Fouts, to me, is my all-time favorite quarterback, period. You know, as far as, like, all of the quarterbacks, you know, I love John Elway. I love, you know, all of the Montana Brady. But to me, my all-time favorite quarterback of all time is Dan Fouts. First of all, how many quarterbacks did you know of at the time that had like a beard that made him look like a mountain man? You, you know, know I was about to say, I don't think I ever seen him without a beard. I have when he was at Oregon. And he looked so funny without a beard. And there were, <laughs> you know, when because he was teammates with Ahmad Rashad at Oregon. And there's a picture of the two of them. And you was like, wait, is that Dan Fouts? They had to put it in a caption like Amar Rashad and Dan Fouts. I'm like, that can't be Dan Fouts. And it sure enough, it was. And because he looks so different without a beard. And he and Dan Fouts was my first football hero. Uh, because it just seemed like now his career didn't go off to a great start, but once he got together with Don Coriel, then that was that was it after that. Yeah, he doesn't look normal. He looks more like um uh, who played Dick. Dick Tracy, uh, Warren Beatty. He looks more like Warren Beatty. He does. I mean, not to mention that you're absolutely right. He looks a lot like Warren Beatty without the beard. You're absolutely right about that. So we got we got Lance Allworth. We got uh, Dan Fowler. Third one would be LT, obviously, with Daniel Thomas. Um, I remember watching him at TCU, and when – and at the time, you got to understand that the Chargers were terrible. They were absolutely terrible at that time. And they had the number one pick. And they traded that number one pick, which would have been Michael Vick, to Atlanta for, you know, and they got two picks in return. One was LT. The other was Drew Brees. Brees, yes. And, and in, as luck would have it, Drew Brees hurt his shoulder and it ended up being sent to New Orleans. And which is another story, but <laughs> LT was, you know, was just phenomenal to me. You know, he was just absolutely just amazing. You know, as, as running backs go, um, he, he, he had like a little bit of Barry Sanders, a little bit of Walter Payton, you know, had a little power with him too, could catch the ball, throw the ball, could pretty much do everything. You know, a lot which reminded me a lot of Walter Payton. Uh, and then they had to moves like Barry Sanders at times, you know, but I mean, and then plus he was just so humble and so easy to like, you know, 
And that Hall of Fame speech that he gave when he entered the Hall of Fame a couple of years ago was just was amazing. You know, if you ever have a chance to go check out that Hall of Fame speech that he made, go check it out because it's 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 not only it's time, it's also timely now. You know, some of the things that he talked about is something that people should kind of like listen to and kind of emulate even now with what's going on. And the last one would it would have to be a coach, and that coach would be Sid Gilman. Um, because he was the one who essentially invented modern passing. Uh, everything that teams are doing now is a derivative of the offense that Sid Gilman created in the late 50s, early 60s with the one back, you know, vertical passing game with some elements of the West Coast offense. That was his offense. You know, you had asked the question earlier, what piece of memorabilia would I like to have? I would like to have you know, John Hadle's jersey, and I would also love to have the playbook of Sid Gilman, just to like, just to look through it and just see just some of the things that he, he was talking about and some of, the, some of the theories that he had, you know, which I thought was just pretty awesome. And you got to have the pipe, too. Yeah, oh, definitely the pipe and the bow tie. The pipe and the bow tie. Oh, absolutely. Well, Dana, I, and one, one last thing. I, I tell you what, of all the Super Bowl rings, um, to me, the Saints are – there's probably top three. Oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. It's that beautiful. Is, that is a gorgeous ring. That is an absolutely gorgeous ring. You're right. Now, now, to me, I love the basic. I love the old school Cowboys. But if you're going to have a newer one, it would be the Saints. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Because I, I was uh, – I think I have a, a friend of mine actually has a poster of the Saints championship ring. You know, he made it into a poster and put it into like his man cave or whatever. And I thought it was just amazing. I respect that. I respect, you know, everybody has their own nerd in them somewhere, and that's a nerd, and I respect that. Yeah. Because I'm sitting here looking across my, my office here, and I have a, a cutout of Mark Mariani carrying around a world uh, WWE championship belt. So I've got my level of nerd. <laughs> that's pretty, hey, we, that's we pretty are neat. We are what we are. But e even more, I got a Derrick Henry pop up here. Okay. And I'm afraid that he's going to bust through and stiff arm me any moment. Look, that's something that you have to be afraid of. <laughs> you, you want to know what's funny? I played him yesterday in uh, Madden. We, we did a fantasy draft with me and my friend. And I was like, you know what? He's going to stiff arm me. And you know the first thing he did? He stiffed arm. He stiff armed J.J. Watt and just put him in the turf. I'm like, yep, that's the way the game's going to go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's, he's, he's a load. He's definitely a load. No doubt. Well, Dana, thank you for your time. And again, plug your uh, uh, your Twitter page and tell us you're working on getting a podcast together. Yes, I'm working on getting a podcast together because I think, you know, I was kind of on the fence about it, but after spending time with you and stuff and, and having some ideas float in my head, I'm like, well, definitely, I got to do this. Um, my Twitter feed is Historically Speaking, and it's, it's Historically SP and the number two. And I talk about all kinds of different things, things that happen on this date in history, as well as other observations in sports history. Not just football, I talk about baseball, I talk about basketball, Olympics, boxing, whatever, that, that I may come across and may find interesting. And I'm going to use that as a basis for my podcast in the near future. Well, you have an easy way of talking. I love your cadence. I love you. I love who you are, my friend. And I just met you. So keep it up. And when you're ready to get going, let me know and, and we will plug it. Hey, man, hey, once I get ready, I'm, I'm looking to try to get started probably around the first of the year. 
uh, to get it started. And um, and hopefully, you know, barring any unforeseen circumstances, it's going to happen probably around the first of the year. Well, you let me know. We will plug it on this podcast and on my Twitter page and my Facebook page. We'll get it. All right, man. I appreciate your time, man. Thank you for having me. I really had, really appreciate it. I had a lot of fun. And, and is football family to you? My football family right to you, right back to you, brother. Take it easy, my friend. All right, man. Thank you for having me. No problem. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.